It's been a dark year. And no matter who you are or what you've gone through, you have had difficulties in 2020. There's no question. And they could range everywhere from just the kind of daily stress and anxiety and fear of everything that's happened this year, all the way up to the truly like devastating and earth-shaking kind of problems that many of us have experienced. And if you're like me, you're noticing that as the seasons change in our neighborhoods and people's front lawns and storefronts start to fill up with images of skeletons and tombstones and any other dark thing you can imagine, it almost feels like the decor is starting to match the year a little bit too well. Chances are you felt at some point during this year, um, or many points during this year, like you are under attack. And if you and I were to sit down and talk, we could come up with just a laundry list of the different enemies, big and small, that we feel like we're under attack from. But the encouraging thing for us as Christians is that the Bible doesn't shy away from talking about pain and suffering and very real enemies. And in comparison to that giant list that I just said we could come up with, the Bible really chooses to focus in on three great enemies of God, God's will, and God's people. And so what we're going to do is take the next three weeks to talk about each one of those enemies, who they are, how Jesus has dealt with them, and how we as Christians are called to get into the fight against them. And today, we're going to start with the first of those enemies and the one that is kind of iconic during this particular season, someone who the Bible calls the Satan. And despite the fact that all of us have kind of this pop culture association with this character with pointy horns and a pointy tail and a pitchfork, most of us don't really know that much about him. And that could be a problem. Paul talks to the church in Corinth and says that we are not ignorant of Satan's designs. And so that means that we as Christians are expected to have not an obsession with him or like be looking for him around every corner, but to have some sense of who he is and what he's up to so we know how to deal with him and how to combat him. So we're going to start at the very beginning. We meet the Satan, and you'll notice, by the way, I call him the Satan a lot of the time, and that's intentional. It's to remind me and to remind you that Satan isn't his personal name. The Satan is a title. It's the way we say in English the Hebrew term hasatan, which means the adversary or the accuser. And we're actually learning, even just from that name, something about him. He shows up on page three of the Bible, Genesis chapter three where he is a serpent in the garden with Adam and Eve. Now, this chapter comes after two just glorious, beautiful chapters. Genesis 1 has God speaking creation into existence. And over and over again, he sees what he makes and he declares it good. Seven times, in fact, which is one of the author's ways of letting you know that declaring what is good and what is not good is the job of God. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, God takes humanity, Adam and Eve, his representatives and image bearers and places them into the garden to live with him in his life-giving presence. And he tells them, you can eat from any of the trees in this garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Now, a lot of the time we think of that tree as just kind of this arbitrary obedience test, like will they eat this apple or not? But the truth is what that tree is called is of incredible significance. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we've just learned that the job of determining good and evil is God's and God's alone. He determines good. He tells you his will. And humanity is meant to obey it. And so what this tree is, is an opportunity for humanity to take that job upon themselves. And that would have disastrous results. And that's exactly 
what the Satan tempts Eve to do. On page three, he shows up and it just calls him the serpent in Genesis three, but we learn later in the New Testament that this is the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And this is what he says to Eve. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, so much of what can be known about Satan is right there in that opening section in a kind of compressed form. What does he do? He takes the truth of God. He takes God's good will, which is for Adam and Eve's good, and he twists it. He lies. He deceives. He tempts. And of course, we all know Eve falls for it and Adam with her. And as a result, Adam and Eve are sent out of the presence of God, out of that life-giving garden into the wilderness. And in a very real sense, all of humanity goes with them from that garden into a wilderness that is in some way under the control of Satan. See, it's an uncomfortable thing for us to talk about. But even though the Bible is clear that God is sovereign over everything, including the activity of his enemies, the New Testament authors are very clear that the world is under the power and influence and control of Satan. I mean, John calls him the ruler of this world, and Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. When we're in the world, before we're rescued out of it by God, when we're in the world, we are automatically and willingly participants and members of his kingdom. And so I don't mean this in some kind of like, you know, horror movie, creepy way, like every bad thing you do or every bad thing you think is the devil himself doing that to you. But we feel his influence in our everyday life. And if you're honest with yourself, you know what I'm talking about. And so again, Paul has told us, we have, we, we're not ignorant of his designs. We need to know what he's up to. And so there are three kind of iconic things about how Satan works in the world that I want us to focus in on in order to really understand how we can be aware of him and combat him. The first is that he is a liar. And we see this all over the Bible, but one of the most dramatic places is in John's gospel. It's the words of Jesus himself. He's speaking to the Pharisees who are acting in opposition to him, and he makes this accusation. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. It's hard to imagine a more brutal accusation than that, that your father is the devil. But look what he says about him. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. A liar and the father of lies. And so what I wanna ask you is during this time, during this incredibly difficult year, what lies have you been hearing? Lies about yourself, lies about God, God's will, lies about your family. More importantly, just than what you're hearing, what lies have you found yourself believing? I can tell you as a pastor, there are lies being spoken to God's people. And the the ground right now in 2020 is fertile for them to be believed. And they can be lies that sow division within your family, among you and your friends, particularly between you and the rest of the body of Christ, your brothers and sisters, that cause you to divide with your fellow Christian rather than be united under the most important thing of all the blood of Jesus. And even more insidious than that, There are so many lies being whispered about 
you and your value? Have you felt this year worthless? Have you felt like you don't matter to God, that you have no value to God? Have you maybe even felt whispered lies that your life is not worth living? See, Jesus just said that the Satan is a murderer from the beginning. The father of light, his will for you is the opposite of the will of the father of lies. God wants you to have life and have it abundantly. The Satan is a murderer. He wants you destroyed, unmade, undone. And so we have to learn, and we'll talk more about this a little bit later, we have to learn how to discern the difference between truth and falsehood and when we are being lied to by ourselves or by Satan and his influence in our world. He's a liar. The second thing is he's a tempter. And this is, of course, iconic of his role. He's the, the tempter of humanity. He tries to get us to do things that we know we shouldn't do. But listen to how Paul describes it in the letter to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians. He tells them, I am afraid, this is 2 Corinthians eleven three. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He says, I'm afraid that the exact same temptation that happened to Eve will happen to you. And notice the thing he's worried about in particular is that we will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And once again, this is a year where all of us are seeing that the ground is fertile for temptation. You might find that in your life, there are old sinful habits that are gaining new strength, gaining new footholds in your life, or even new sins, new temptations that are fighting for your attention and your affections. And these could be everything from the kind of things that are obviously sin that we know we need to fight against, things like, like addiction, things like lust and pornography, things like anger and fighting. And these are very real and very dangerous, but there are also temptations that appear to be something that's not even bad or maybe even good. Things like like social media, things like entertainment, things like politics, anything that the Satan can use to take you away from what Paul calls a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. We can't be asleep to these temptations. We need to be aware of them and able to name them and recognize them for what they are. He's a liar and he's a tempter. And the third thing, and this is the kind of the most abstract, but it's central to who he is, is he is in accuser. Now, we talked before about the fact that Satan isn't his name. It's one of his titles. He's never named in the Bible, but he's called the Satan, which is the Hebrew term for adversary or accuser. And watch specifically how at the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation describes what he does. When John sees in a vision, the dragon that is Satan, he calls him, and this is a long section, so I'm going to jump around. It's in Revelation 12, starting at verse nine. He says, that he is the deceiver of the whole world, one, and the accuser of our brothers. That's very interesting because he's the deceiver of the whole world. That's everybody. But he says he is the accuser specifically of our brothers. That's the Greek word adelphoi, which means brothers and sisters. It's a general term. And it's the term that's used all over the New Testament to refer to Christians. Deceiver of the whole world, accuser of Christians. Now, why would that be? Why would it be Christians who he is the accuser of? Here's the truth. Christians are those who, at the very core of our identity, have had our debts paid by Jesus at the cross. We have had our sins forgiven. 
And so one of the most devious and powerful and evil things Satan can do is bring a false accusation of guilt against you that you then believe. So rather than living in the identity as a forgiven Christian, you begin to feel the weight and burden of guilt that you no longer have to feel. Now, not everybody feels this evenly, but there are many of you who are exactly like me, because this is me, who there are things you've done, there are thoughts you've had, there are things from your past that, man, when they come to mind, just bring a flood of guilt and shame. And I'm here to tell you that that is not from God. That's the influence of evil. Now, don't get confused. Not every single feeling of guilt is evil. God uses guilt. God uses it. But the Bible is very clear that godly grief is that grief that leads us to repentance, that leads us to confession, that drives us in gratitude to Jesus. It's not a place you live. The evil insidious accusation is guilt over sins that have already been forgiven and atoned for that cause you to doubt God's love for you, that cause you to doubt your salvation. And once again, we have to learn to see that for what it is. He's a liar, he's a tempter, and he's an accuser. He's a very real enemy in our world and in our lives. But there is incredibly good news. And it's really good news that comes in two parts. See, we talked about how Adam and Eve and all of humanity with them were driven out of God's presence and into the wilderness. But 2,000 years ago, the Son of God walked willingly into the wilderness to face that same Satan who had tempted and overcome every human being before him. When Jesus goes into the wilderness to face the Satan, it's not just some random story. This is him succeeding where all of humanity has failed. And so the Satan tempts him with three different things, all of which are kind of iconic of the temptations that we face. And every time Jesus stands strong and he does it by quoting scripture to the Satan. There's not some kind of magical battle. There's not some battle of wits or fist fight that happens. Jesus quotes the sure, solid scripture to combat the devil. And it says that the Satan departs from him to return at an opportune time. And when that happens is almost certainly on the night that Jesus is betrayed. It's almost like to close the circle of the whole story, Jesus, on the night he's betrayed, feels the weight and burden of everything he's going to do in a garden, from wilderness to garden again. And Jesus in that place is faced with the, the enormity of the task that he is about to do, and it's brutal and difficult. He weeps, he cries tears, he's in agony. But at the end of all of that, what he says is the thing that all of humanity has failed to say from the beginning. See, Adam and Eve and all of us in turn have said, God, I'm not going to do your will. I'm not going to let you determine what's evil and good. I am going to do it. Not your will, my will. Jesus in that other garden says, not my will, your will be done. And it's the will of God that Jesus go to the cross to rescue us from our sins, but also to defeat the Satan. See, we're used to thinking of the cross as the place where our sins are atoned for. And of course it is, praise God. But it is also the place where Jesus defeats Satan. And we don't talk about that as much as Christians typically, but it's all over the New Testament. It is forceful. I mean, John says that Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Paul talks about how God in Christ 
disarmed the powers and principalities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And probably most powerfully in the book of Hebrews chapter two, we read that the reason that Jesus took on human flesh is that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Through Jesus's death, he destroys the Satan. It's absolutely incredible. But we know that from continuing to read the Bible, that fight is ongoing. The final kind of definitive destruction of Satan is yet in the future. But the means by which God is still combating him today, he's been dealt his death blow. But that combat goes on in a way that is amazing and shocking and should be profoundly encouraging to you. Paul, at the end of the book of Romans, chapter 16, he's wrapping everything up. He says to the Christians in Rome, the God of all peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Under your feet. He tells the Christians the way that God is dispensing with and destroying the evil one is through his church. Now, this doesn't make Christians individually like superheroes or anything. The church is the body of Christ on earth. It is still Christ who is crushing the serpent. But the means of doing that is his church. And what that means is that Jesus' victory over Satan is our victory over Satan. Jesus has disarmed that ancient enemy and put his head under the heel of the church. And what that looks like, for the most part, is us imitating the ways that Jesus combated the Satan when he faced him. When Jesus faces the Satan in the wilderness, again, there's no kind of magical spells or incantations. He quotes the truth of scripture. And so when you are dealing with lies and temptations and accusations, your surest defense is to know and speak to yourself the truth that is in scripture. Don't try to get into a battle of wits or try to outthink you. Remember the truth that is in scripture. And this is incredibly practical. I'm talking about bringing the promises and truths of scripture to bear and forcing the lies of the evil one to contend with them. So when you feel anxious and like no one cares for you, you remember that the New Testament says that you can cast your anxieties upon God for he cares for you. And when you feel distant from God, like something that you've done or something in your life has made God impossibly far away from you, you remember that the Bible says that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can. And when you look at a year like 2020 and think like, man, everything is just hopeless. It's getting worse and worse and worse and nothing good can ever happen again. You remind yourself that we believe in a story that ends with the God of the universe wiping every tear from our eyes and banishing death and suffering from creation forever. And finally, and most significantly, when you feel condemned, when you as a Christian feel like your sins are unforgivable, like God is still holding things against you, you say to yourself, that is a lie straight from the enemy, because I know that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. So you bring the truth of scripture to bear on the lies that you hear from the enemy and you force those lies to contend with the truth. And the other thing you do quite simply is what Jesus did in the garden. He prays when he's faced with that incredible weight. And he prays specifically in accordance with the will of God. He asks for what he wants. He says, Father, if there's any other way, then let this cup be taken from me. But at the end of his prayer, what he says is, not my will, your will. Another really interesting story about prayer in the New Testament is there's a time when Jesus tells Peter something terrifying. He says, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. 
Hard to imagine a scarier thing that could be said to you by Jesus. But Jesus says this, he says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I mean, think about that for a second. Jesus tells Peter, Satan wants you. And what the son of God does when he knows that's happening to his friend is he prays for him. And so at an incredibly basic, simple level, what I'm telling you is the skull crushing of Satan that the Christians do in the modern age is to know our Bibles and to pray. And that may sound incredibly basic, like we're just talking about basic Christian disciplines, but you and I know that 2020 is the year for disciplines to just completely fall off the rails, right? I mean, we're all eating bad, our exercise schedules have fallen apart, we're watching way too much TV. Do not let this be a time when you forsake the simple things of reading scripture and praying. If you want to have the Bible there as a source of truth to defend you from lies, you need to read it. You need to meditate on it. You need to be saturated in it. And so I urge you, don't give these things up. And if you have, don't wallow in guilt and shame. Thank God for his forgiveness and pick up your Bible every day. Open the book of Matthew and just start reading. Read a little bit every day and go to God in prayer every day. As Paul said, the God of peace is going to crush Satan under our feet. And so, man, like I said at the beginning, it's been a dark year. But even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with us. And even when the world feels incredibly hard and against us, Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. And so the main thing that we do, our main source of confidence is we walk in the finished work of Jesus. His victory over Satan is your victory over Satan. And so in the midst of difficulty and pain and trial, when you feel like you are still in the wilderness and that promised future garden is far, far away, you remind yourself, Jesus has won. His victory is your victory. And you walk confidently in the victory of your King who loves you.